0: Well, thank you, Adrian, for your welcome to me. And uh, if I may, welcome to yourself and Pippa, welcome to Warwickshire. Uh, it's been my home for the last 44 years, but it's not where I'm from originally. Where, where have you come from, Adrian? Yeah, uh, the Green, North East London. Sorry? North East London. No, I heard you, I'm just sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry, that, that, that was silly. Um, yeah, I'm a Londoner as well. I was born and raised in, in North London, in Wembley, in Halston, so not, not too far away. Welcome anyway, it's good to have you uh, here. And uh, I, I suppose that now that Adrian is in, in post uh, and will be no uh, doubt picking up uh, the preaching or some of it that perhaps I will see less of you going forward, but I hope we won't lose contact altogether. It would be a privilege to carry on serving you in some, some small way. Now, you are, as members of the regular congregation will know, you are currently engaged in a series of studies, as you've been told, looking into the Gospel according to St. Mark. Uh, Quite possibly the first of the four Gospels to be written, and certainly indisputably the shortest of the four Gospels when it comes to reading them. And uh, uh, for those of you, and I, I include myself, for those of us who, in our Perhaps rare moments of honesty are are prepared to admit, but our following of Jesus tends to be a bit hit and miss. Um, I think the very existence of the Gospel according to St. Mark should be a huge encouragement to us. It's really a Gospel which I think probably came close to not being written at all, because the man who wrote it made a very inauspicious start. His track record as a follower of Jesus was very patchy for quite some while. Probably the first time we read about Mark, and I'm sure this has been covered in previous sessions, so I won't labour it, probably the first time we read about Mark, uh, he is what I would call a frightened disciple. He's running away from the scene where Jesus was arrested. The second time we read about him, he's not just a frightened disciple, and now he's a failed missionary, and uh, he deserts his uncle Barnabas and the Apostle Paul, part way through a missionary journey. Uh, frankly, when the going got tough, Mark got going, but the wrong way. Eventually, we read about Mark in two of the letters of St. Paul, and the Apostle Paul calls him a useful member of his team and a faithful servant, a good worker. Did you see what I'm saying? Initially, when Mark set out to follow Jesus, He really didn't make a very good fist of it, did he? A frightened disciple, a failed missionary, but God didn't give up on Mark. And of course the most wonderful and the most strategic thing that Mark did was to write the Gospel which bears his name. And I mean, we couldn't begin to calculate, could we, how many millions of people have been helped and blessed and brought to faith in Jesus Christ because Mark wrote a Gospel. And what a Gospel he wrote... I freely confess to you, and perhaps this says something about the, 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 um, the level at which my intellect ticks over. Uh, Mark is probably my favourite of the four Gospels. Uh, because it, it, it's brief, it's pacey, it, there's a sense of immediacy, a sense of urgency. Jesus is presented as a man of action. That all plays into my wheelhouse. That's, that's, that kind of relates and resonates with me. And I enjoy reading Mark. Incredible writer. And I'm quite convinced he'd never use two words if one would do. And he'd never use a long word if he could get away with a short word. And so what we have is a short, punchy, all-action record of some of the things that Jesus began to do and to say and to teach. Now, on the face of it, and again, I mustn't labour this, but on the face of it, it struck me when I was preparing this that um, Mark had a lot going for him in terms of helping him to follow Jesus. His mother was a follower of Jesus. The early Christians used to meet in his mother's house. Um, His friends included the Apostle Peter and the other Apostles. His uncle Barnabas was a missionary. You'd think that he had a lot of going for him. Uh, I wonder sometimes if that's quite as much of a help as we might have thought it was. Let me tell you a quick story. My, my, My youngest son, Ben, uh, I was interviewing him once at a young people's camp, a teenager's camp that I was speaking at, and Ben was there as one of the, one of the leaders, and I said, Ben, I w- I've got a couple of questions for you, son. I said, I want you to tell us, and we hadn't prepared this, we hadn't rehearsed it. Very dangerous business to ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, <laughs> publicly. I said, uh, Ben, a couple of questions for you. One, um, what, what what is the... What is the best, most helpful thing for you about being a Christian? What helps you to follow Jesus? And the second question is, what makes it difficult for you to follow Jesus? And he thought for a moment and said, actually, the answer is the same to both questions. He said, one of the things that helps him is that his dad is a preacher, his dad and mum both believe in Jesus and are enthusiastic, if somewhat erratic, followers of Christ. He said, that's great because that, that pulls me back. He said, whenever I begin to go away, and whenever I begin to go cold, and that kind of pulls me back to my roots, and that's helpful. I said, what's the most difficult thing? He said, well, the most difficult thing is that my dad's a preacher. My mum and dad are Christians. <laughs> I said, why is that difficult, son? He said, because it makes it very difficult for me, this is what he said, to separate what is his faith and what is the faith that his parents have got. Now, honestly, does that kind of connect with anybody here? I I suspect it does. And actually, Ben was several years trying to sort out for himself uh, in his uh, sixth form and then when he went away to university. He took several years to really sort out for himself what what were the things he really personally believed and prepared to stand by and follow and live by. And what were the things which he kind of picked up from his uh, parents, one of whom at least has. I'm told a fairly powerful personality. Uh, Mark had a lot going for him. His mother was a believer, the church used to meet in his house, his uncle was a missionary, you get a picture? But he still made a pretty patchy start to it all. So here's the encouragement for us. If God can take hold of somebody like Mark, whose only real skill seemed to be running away, if God can take hold of Mark and use him to bring blessing to millions of people, God can take hold of you. And God can take hold of me. Well, uh, there's nothing subtle about Mark, is there, when you read his Gospel? I mean, he, he begins his Gospel, the very first line of his Gospel says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom, I mean, it's right there across the plate. He's not creeping up on it, he's not keeping his cards his, his close to his chest. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now let me tell you about this Jesus, says well, now we break in towards the end of the Gospel in chapter 15, as we've had read and um, projected for us, which is one of the crucifixion narratives. It tells us what happened to, to Jesus. Um, the, the, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're, they're strange in a way, aren't they? Or they, they, they? They can appear to be strange in the way that they're constructed. I have two biographies at home of Winston Churchill, our great wartime leader. One is by Roy Jenkins, the late Roy Jenkins, who was a member of parliament uh, for many years, and the other one is by Boris Johnson, our current Prime Minister. Uh, Jenkins' volume on Churchill is about yay thick, it's a very serious (laughs) doorstep of a book. In fact, I've taken it with me each time I've gone to Moldova. This will be my sixth visit. I take it with me as bedtime reading to try and combat my insomnia. I have still not finished the book. But I have skipped ahead and read the last page. There are over 930 pages in Jenkins' biography of Winston Churchill. And do you know how much space, do you know how many pages there are devoted to the death of Winston Churchill after 930 pages Three paragraphs. Three paragraphs on his death. Now Boris Johnson's book is a slimmer volume. It's written in a rather more entertaining and lively style, as you can imagine. It still runs to over 250 pages. And Boris is more generous when it comes to the death of Churchill than Jenkins was. He gives him four paragraphs. Amazing. A great man who made a huge difference to the world that he lived in most remarkable accomplishments in two biographies, seven paragraphs in total devoted to his death. In the Gospels, nearly 40% of all that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote is about the last week and the last hours of Jesus Christ's life. Now isn't that a strange way to write a biography? Mm -hmm. Given all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said, nearly 40%. Of their material is devoted to the death of Christ. I'll tell you why. It's because, as somebody said, the most significant thing Jesus did with his life was losing. The most significant thing he did was losing. The very hour somebody said for which he came into the world was the very hour at which he left it. And Jesus himself insisted. That when we think about him and we remember him, we think about and we particularly remember his death. I mean, his miracles are marvellous and it's worth remembering the miracles Jesus did, but Jesus didn't actually command us to do that. His teaching, of course, was incredible and excellent beyond our ability to express. And Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will help you remember the things I've taught. But he expressly and explicitly commanded those who believe in him to remember his death. He even gave us visual aids and a procedure to help us to do that. Why? Because it's significant. The most significant thing Jesus did in a life that was shot through with significance, the most important thing he did with his life, was losing. And in Mark chapter 15, we read about how he lost it. We read about what happened. And we're going to look at what happened now as we just track down that passage Uh, quite quickly and then towards the end I'm going to just change of focus, I'm going to think for a few minutes about why he did it, the what he did, that's here in the passage but we need also to remember the why and think about that well the passage begins or where we jumped in at verse 16 I think the word which best expresses verses 16 to 20 is the simple word cruelty cruelty the soldiers amuse themselves by tormenting him and by abusing him. I mean, it's just sheer. Honestly, I nearly swore. I'm sorry. But it is sheer, sheer gratuitous brutality. No rhyme, no reason, no excuse, no justification. Just sheer malevolent, vindictive cruelty. Have you ever hit anybody over the head? I'm serious. Have you ever hit anybody over the head with a wooden stick? I have to confess to my shame, I have. Although not recently. So I'm not going to come amongst you and start (laughs) knocking you about. Many years ago, before I came in Christ, I can remember it very, very clearly. It is almost insanely brutal. It's a horrible thing to do. And these were finely judged blows, weren't they? They weren't designed to render him unconscious. That would have spoiled all the fun. They were intended to hurt. They hit him. And they spat. And they mocked. Just sheer cruelty. Handed out to someone who'd done nothing to deserve that sort of treatment. Who'd never raised a hand to hurt anyone. Cruelty. Soldiers amused themselves. And then the passage moves on from verse 21 about this unfortunate chap, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. I hope his children weren't with him on the day this happened. This would have been a grim experience for them to see as they come to Jerusalem to pass This man, Simon, is coercion. He is compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. Other Gospels tell us that Jesus carried his own cross, at least part of the way To Skull Hill, to Golgotha, but clearly only part of the way. The injuries that had been inflicted on him prior to his crucifixion were so severe a back laid open to the bone by 39 lashes, so severe, the blood loss, so severe. Jesus staggered and stumbled and fell under his own cross. And Simon was coerced into picking it up and carrying it. And then, verse twenty-two, onwards the story or the account of the crucifixion itself. Um, They brought Jesus, verse twenty-two, to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. We might colloquially render that a skull hill. Skull hill. It's so prosaic. It's so down to earth. I mean, the Latin word that is used for this place is Calvary. Calvary is a term which is popular with hymn writers and songwriters, isn't it? Because there's not a whole lot that rhymes with Golgotha. Calvary is altogether, it feels softer and more gentle. It still means skull. It still means head. But it's a gentler word. It took him to skull hill. I Googled before I came out today, where is Golgotha in Jerusalem? Because actually the answer is uh, no one is quite sure. But do you know, the first answer that came up it is behind the bus station outside the old city wall. How prosaic, I mean, how down to earth is that? Jesus wasn't crucified on a high church table between two candles, crucified on a corporation rubbish tip between two criminals to get absolutely real, and gritty and bloody, they crucified him. But um, it it's, may have occurred to you, that it, you may even have thought it was strange, that we don't actually have a, a blow by blow, as it were, description of crucifixion anywhere in the Bible. Because the obvious answer, the obvious reason is that, that there was no need to paint a picture of words of what a crucifixion was for people in the first century, they knew only too well what a crucifixion looked like. It had been practiced by the Carthaginians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans. People understood what it meant to be crucified. We we, we live a long way away in time and space from that era. And so maybe you'll forgive me, but I just want to run this past you. This is a little description of crucifixion. The victim was nailed to a crossbeam. That would be raised up and attached to a vertical, upright beam, to which the victim's feet or ankles would be nailed. Death would eventually come through loss of blood and or asphyxiation. As the arms weakened it would become impossible for the victim to raise himself up and to draw a full lungful of breath. So they had no option but to put their weight on their nailed feet or ankles to push themselves erect and there's only so long when a person could do that. And in the event that somebody hung on the cross for longer than the time which they were expected to be, the Romans had two very effective methods of hastening death and of ensuring that death had actually happened. They would break the knees with a giant mallet or pierce the body through with the thrust of a spear. And all that horror is caught up in these four little words, and they crucified him. I don't need to underline the drama. I don't need any more to drag out the grisly details. This should be speaking to us. This is what happened to Jesus. What were the soldiers doing? Well, my word is carelessness. They they, they were just gambling at the foot of the cross. They they, they weren't moved by the weeping spectators. Their hearts weren't touched by his distraught mother. They weren't touched by the terrible sufferings that Jesus was undergoing. They weren't interested in questions of theology. Or Jewish law. Or ritual and sacraments and ceremony. All that was above their pay grade. They were just doing their job. And to while away the time. They rolled dice. And then in verse 27 we pick up on some of the people who were present at the cross. The criminals. And the chief priests in verse 31. Isn't that interesting how... Two such disparate groups who wouldn't have a good word to say for each other, who wouldn't agree about anything under the sun, criminals and chief priests suddenly find some basis for unity. Have you noticed that? In the Christian church it's amazing how when people love Jesus it brings people, a disparate people from all manner of backgrounds and stations in life, it brings us together, doesn't it? We are united because of what we believe about Jesus and how we feel about Jesus, but Enmity of Christ also unites people. King Herod, Pontius Pilate, hated each other's guts, agreed only about one thing, let's get rid of Jesus. You see, disparate groups brought together in hostility to Jesus Christ. And that's what's happened. And then finally, as we begin to move through, we have... uh, Well, I'm going to call verses 23 to 28 the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning. Um, Jesus spoke, the Bible tells us, seven times whilst he was hanging on the cross. And the last two utterances are here in Mark's Gospel. The first one is what I'll call a cry of desolation. You see it there in verse 34. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of desolation. And the second cry is in verse 37. And we're told in other Gospels what it was. It was not a cry of desolation, it was a cry of completion. Jesus shouted one word, unless they are finished, accomplished. So the cry of desolation, I think in a sense it was a rhetorical question. I think Jesus actually knew why he was enduring that sense of being separated from God as he hung on the cross. The Bible teaches that in those hours of darkness, a darkness I think that was so so deep, so intense, it was intended to stop people seeing what was happening. I doubt even the demons of hell could pierce that darkness because in those moments God was doing something terrible and yet at the same time wonderful. He was taking all my sin and all your sin, my guilt, my punishment, your punishment for sin, and he was laying it on his own sinless, wonderful son Jesus. The Bible says God made him, who knew no sin, had no sin, thought no sin, spoke no sin, God made him to be sin or a sin-bearer for us. And it happened in darkness, and it happened on the cross. And it was such an intense sense of being under God's judgment and separated from God that the cry was torn from Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He forsook him so he doesn't have to forsake you. And doesn't have to forsake me. And then at the very end, Seconds before he breathed his last and what a superhuman effort it must have taken to raise his voice at that point so far along in the process of dying he cried that wonderful word finished not I am finished this wasn't a cry of resignation this wasn't a cry of surrender this was a declaration of triumph it's a very fascinating word the word finished in the Bible it was a word that a servant might use, reporting to his master that orders had been carried out. It was a word that a priest might use after he examined a sacrificial lamb and found it to be without spot or without blemish. It was a word that an artist might use when he completed a piece of music or a painting. It was a word that a merchant would stamp on a receipt to indicate that payment had been made in full. It was a word that would be stamped on a bill and given to a debtor as they were released from prison, meaning that their debt had been paid. Jesus means all that. He says it's finished. The death of Christ finished the painting that God had begun millennia before. The death of Christ paid the debt of sin that kept us in prison of our own guilt. The death of Christ finished all that was needing to be done in order to make salvation possible. The death of Christ, now get this friends, it wrapped up and it did away with all the Old Testament dietary, kosher, ceremonial laws. Finished. Over 200 years ago, a man who actually was born in Coventry and was a a, a minister of the Gospel in Folls Hill in Coventry, 200 years ago, he wrote a wonderful hymn, Hark the Voice of Love and Mercy, Sounds Aloud from Calvary. And he went on to write, Finished. All the types and shadows of the ceremonial law, finished all that God had promised. Death and hell shall o'er no more. Jesus did it all. He did everything necessary to make it possible for God to forgive you and forgive me and put Him right, put us right with Himself. And when now, cry verse thirty-seven, Jesus breathed His last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And if you'll forgive me, Caldwell friends, I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine as I close, which I'm sure I've used um, on one of my previous visits. A friend of mine, remarkable man, who founded the Birmingham City Mission and was used by God to plant several churches in, in Essex and in Warwickshire, uh, one of man, man, Edwin Norton, who was a friend of mine, um, he, uh, at one point in his life, he was a school teacher and he was known as a keen Christian by his colleagues. And often they would uh, have a bit of fun at Edwin's expense in the staff room. And on one occasion, one of Edwin's non-Christian colleagues said to him in the staff room, he said, you know, Edwin, I've been thinking, I think it would be a good thing if the Bible was taught in our schools. And this was so contrary to the position he'd taken previously, that Edwin was surprised. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I think it'd be a good thing if the Bible was taught in our schools on one condition. My friend said, what's that? He said, on condition that only the Old Testament is taught. And to this man's great amazement my friend He said, I agree with you, I agree. But tell me, he said, where does the Old Testament end? And the man who knew a little bit about his Bible said, well it ends with the book of Malachi. And Edwin Autumn, founder of the Birmingham City Mission and my friend said, no it doesn't. No it doesn't. Do you understand? The Old Testament ends here. The veil in the temple The curtain in the temple was torn in two. That is the end of the old contract which was enforced between God and his people. When that curtain was torn, the way was made open into the presence of God, not just for special people, religious people, priestly people, on rare occasions, but for all people to come right into the presence of God because of what Jesus did. On the cross at Calvary, so long ago, for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you seems uh, just way, way too little to say to you. We, uh, we stand amazed, as the hymn writer said, in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We wonder that he could love us, sinners condemned, unclean. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love, shown to us in the giving of yourself on Calvary. Help us, Lord, to to meet you at the cross, to come in our hearts by faith to the cross, to receive the salvation which you have accomplished and made available to us, in Jesus' name.